The day has finally arrived. We are turning to Hebrews chapter 6, verses 4 through 8 this morning. You remember I told you, this is a difficult passage. In fact, so difficult that we skipped right over it and went to chapter 7. Well, we didn't skip it for the sake of avoiding the topic, but rather being able to understand it more clearly and seeing the full argument that the author of Hebrews is making as he introduces the greater priesthood of Jesus Christ who serves as high priest now of the saints who are made a royal priesthood in His name. The author then moves almost in a parenthetical form. That is, he stops his thought, interrupts himself, and throws into parentheses. Hey, by the way, I'm telling you these things, and I know that it's difficult, and I want you to be able to understand it, but in order for you to do that, you've really got to be committed to growing up in the faith. And it's from this parenthetical thought, this interruption, that he moves into verse 4 and begins to introduce what we are calling this morning a great warning. Indeed, it is a great warning. You know, when we come to church, it's serious business. I don't know if you realize that. Well, and I say that, and I know that you do. But it's easy to take for granted just how serious the business of church is. Well, it's something that we do every week. It's routine. It's built into my schedule. I know what I'm doing on Sunday. This great warning is for you, church. The great warning of the author of Hebrews is for you, that you would know that what you are doing in a routine and habitual basis, even in your private disciplines as you pray to God, as you worship Him, it's serious business. Sometimes it strikes me more abruptly than other times just how serious it is. Teaching at church camp a few years ago, I was leading the breakout groups for 6th and 7th grade boys. A delightful age. One of the boys would not stop talking. He would not quit distracting his cohorts who were gathered around him. He was a ringleader. I got fed up. I turned to him and I said, I don't care if you're here. Your mama's not here. I'm not your daddy. You can go sit down, lay down. You can wander around the campsite, but you've got to leave. He looked at me. What do you mean? You may not want to hear it, but I want you to understand that what I am teaching these other boys is a matter of eternal damnation or salvation. If you don't want to hear it, I'm not going to make you. You can go. But one of these boys might be going to hell, and you distracting them might be the very thing that prevents them from hearing the gospel this day. He sobered up. A little bit of tough love did him good. It was in that same... um, Well, I tell you this as a joke. I I do regret it, but it was in that same week I was teaching another boy, and he was actually the same boy was acting up again, and I said something. Why are you acting like this? Does your mama not take care of you at home? His mama wasn't in the picture. That was a young man's mistake. We've got to take seriously the things that we talk about at church. As we come to this great warning in the passage of Hebrews, I offer a warning of my own to you as we get started. This passage is difficult because it has to do with the topic of spiritual apostasy. That is, people falling away. We have a systematic theology. We have a doctrinal statement in our church. One of the articles is the perseverance of the saints. That means that the teaching of this church is that once saved, 
always saved because you didn't do anything to earn salvation. It was all by the works of God. What could you possibly do to lose it? With that kind of a mindset, looking at this passage, it's easy to explain away what makes it so difficult to bend it and make it to fit into our systematic theology. Loved ones, I warn you against that this morning. We cannot bend Scripture to fit our systematic theology. Rather, we must be able to appreciate that the right systematic theology is formed only when we confront what this text is actually saying. So my first warning to you is that as we come to a difficult passage of Scripture, that we would be willing to abandon all that we think that we know to embrace what God has clearly said in His written Word. It's not how we should read the Bible, making the Bible match our needs or wants. When we read, if we come across something that challenges every teaching that we've ever known, even the foundational teachings of our own beliefs, we must be willing to abandon all that we think that we know to be closely bound to the Bible. With that said, my goal this morning is not to try and explain away what makes this passage difficult, but it's rather to understand what it means, that we would see cohesion and accordance and agreement between all of the Bible. David Guzik, when writing on the same warning, says that systems of theology have some value as they show how biblical ideas are connected and show that the Bible does not contradict itself. But the way to a right system begins with a right understanding of the text, not one that bends the text to fit into a system. The renowned English preacher, the prince of preachers, Charles Haddon Spurgeon, preaching on the same passage, introduced such a difficult topic in a similar way, saying, oh, that's the same quote. Never mind. Spurgeon has a good quote on this. But our warning is still the same. We must look at the Bible and what it says and seek to understand it before we try to apply it, we cannot rush the process. After all, it's serious business. An additional warning that I would offer to you as we discuss this passage is it is easy to look at passages in the Scriptures that reveal or convict or cause us to be stirred for our own desperate need and desperation for a Savior, that we make it apply in the sense that it talks about all of those people. Well, all of those people who could possibly fall away, all of those people for whom it is impossible to repent, that is not how we should apply the Bible. This warning was not written to the unfaithful church. This was written to saints for whom the same author was able to say in verse 9, though we are speaking to you in this way, yet in your case, beloved, we feel sure of better things. This warning that we come to is not an abstraction that only exists for somebody else, but it is for us. With those two warnings, let's turn to the text. I pray your Bible is already open to Hebrews chapter 6, prepared to read along with me as I read out loud. Our Father in heaven, we come to you this morning thankful for your word. And God, aware of the difficulty that comes with this passage of Scripture, God, I pray that you would give us humble hearts ready to receive your word as it is written and intended. Give us understanding and guidance as we walk through this text. God, I pray that you would open the eyes of our heart that we would be able to behold the wondrous truth found in your law. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. The Bible says, Hebrews chapter 6, verse 4, For it is impossible in the case of those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift, and have shared in the Holy Spirit, and have tasted the goodness of the Word of God and the powers of the age to come, and then have fallen away to restore them again to repentance, since they are crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm and holding Him up to contempt. 
For the land has drunk the rain that has often falls on it, and produces a crop useful for those whose sake it is cultivated, receives a blessing from God. But if it bears thorns and thistles, it is worthless and near to being cursed, and its end is to be burned. Three uh, popular views are worth mentioning as we uh, begin to enter into this passage, especially concerning what is apostasy in this sense, and more rightly, what is the author talking about here? You see, the key question we have to ask ourselves when coming to this passage is, first, who are we talking about in Hebrews chapter 6? And second, what is their spiritual condition? We have to know these two things before we're able to understand what this passage is talking about, or even what the warning is. One popular view is that these who are falling away, those who are we talking about, are genuine believers. That they are saved, that they have made a full turn away from sinfulness and towards God. And then that they have fallen away. Now the problem with this view is that its greatness witness against it is the rest of the New Testament. John 6.37, Jesus taught that all that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. Jesus again, John 10.27 through verse 29, My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. Now, someone who wanted to take this view and say that this passage is describing genuine believers would look at John chapter 10 and they would say, Ah, yes, but the Bible says no one can snatch them from God's hand. What's to stop them from jumping? I've heard that. The only problem is, and it's very simple, His sheep hear His voice. They come to Christ and they will not be cast out. With such an alarming contradiction to the rest of the New Testament, I quite honestly find it impossible to adopt the view that those who are being described in our passage this morning are genuine believers, that they have fallen away. Okay, Another view might be that the author of Hebrew is describing a hypothetical situation, something that could possibly happen. It's theoretical. I still have a pretty big problem with that. If this is hypothetical, that would mean that this warning is hypothetical, and really then it's a warning against nothing. Well, I can't really adopt that view then, can I? After all, it would be meaningless. And we know the Bible testifies unto itself that all Scripture is profitable for teaching, training in righteousness, for rebuke and reproof. How could we have a pointless warning? Well, that brings me to a third view. And that is to say that these people being described look real, they act real, they seem real. By every sense of the word, when we look at them, we would say that is a devout Christian. When we spend time with them, we would be encouraged as though they were devout Christians. But they're fake. Phony. They're counterfeit. They're not really committed to God. Their worship is not a worship of the divine, but it is a worship of the goodness that flows out of the blessings of living a life that is in accordance with the word. And you might have guessed that this is the view that I'm going to take this morning, but there's still something troubling about it. Even this third view in saying that the, our author is describing counterfeit Christians has a great bit of argument against it. And our argument doesn't come from the rest of the New Testament. It comes from the passage itself that describes these people as being enlightened, tasting the heavenly gifts, sharing in the Holy Spirit, tasting the goodness of the Word of God, 
and tasting the powers of the age to come, even to the extent of performing miracles and signs. These five characteristics really make the bulk of our message this morning as we see just how important this warning is, not for those other folks, but for us. Those Christians seated in in pews today, this warning belongs to us as we look at these descriptions. You can say, as we look at those descriptions, how is it possible that somebody could, I think most concerning, share in the Holy Spirit? How could they possibly be a fake Christian and turn away? Just getting started this morning, I'll plant three seeds uh, for the basis of my argument. Judas Iscariot looked real, sounded real, and he's hanging on a tree, cursed. Christ himself said to Judas, the one of whom Christ said, but woe to the man who betrays the Son of Man, it would be better for him if he had not been born. I'll give you another one. Simon Magnus, Acts 8.13. Peter, when writing about Simon, describes how he marveled at the amazing power of the Spirit. But as we move down through Acts chapter 8 and verse 21 and 23, he says to the same Simon, Repent because you do not know God. What about Demos? Greeted by alongside Paul as he wrote to the church in Colossae, Colossians 4.14, we find Demos mentioned as a saint who wishes well and warm greetings to the church there in Colossae. But as we read further in the Bible, in the letter to Philemon, written around the same time, verse 24, Paul mentions him as a fellow worker. By the time we get to Paul's final days, as he writes his protege Timothy in 2 Timothy 4.10, Paul condemns Demos hinting at his falling away. Loved ones, as we look at this passage, I I, I gave you a warning by way of introduction, but as we consider who is being described in this passage, I want you to realize that this is not the depraved and the lost and the wicked who are out in the world. This is those who would come into the church, would sit and hear the Word of God, would experience its blessings, and would turn away. What we are doing is serious business. In proclaiming the Word of God, we're not playing games. This isn't for entertainment. In fact, I would even add that to sit and hear the preaching of the Word of God is potentially perilous for those who would walk away. This letter is not written to fake Christians. It's written to saints. It is for the church to heed these warnings. We cannot read and listen this morning thinking, wow, I am glad that this is not describing me. But we must read and say, if all of these things can exist in the life of a counterfeit, What is it that I have that gives me confidence that it isn't describing me? This warning produces a caution for Christians who would grow complacent in their walk, who would view church or the gathering of the saints or the preaching of the word, their personal disciplines, as simply a routine. John Brown says, No saint behaving like a sinner can legitimately enjoy the comfort which the doctrine of perseverance is fitted and intended to communicate to every saint acting like a saint. Do you hear what John Brown's saying? He's saying, if you are habitually living in sin as you pretend to walk in Christ, and you're okay with that, the doctrine of the perseverance of the saints does not belong to you because you should have no confidence in salvation to begin with. That confidence, which comes from the right and true doctrine of the perseverance of salvation, belongs to saints who act like saints. We must understand that it is perseverance, it is maturing, it is growing that gives Christians confidence in their salvation. As a matter of fact, 
Perseverance is equated oftentimes with the very faith that brings us to salvation. You can look at 1 Peter chapter 1 anytime you want to learn more about that. So let's look at these descriptions of those who are being described. First, we said that they are enlightened. This is in verse 4. They've been enlightened. Enlightenment is a similar word to how we use it today. It's not changed much in its meaning. To be enlightened means that light has been cast upon you. That is that wickedness has been revealed when we speak of it in a biblical sense. That means that we have been exposed to the truth, that we have seen it. So we know this to be the case with those who have heard the gospel proclaimed, that they have been enlightened. Even taking it a bit further, these people may even be convinced of the historical veracity of the life of Jesus Christ our Lord. The fact that He was a real person walking on the earth. The truth that not only did He walk on the earth, but He spent time with twelve disciples, teaching them all things that they needed to know in order to become the church. That He was crucified. Murdered. That He was buried in a grave. These people who are enlightened might even be able to admit the overwhelming and abundant amount of first-person witness accounts recorded in archaeological evidences to support the fact that the same man who certainly died rose again and walked and was seen by many. I've been enlightened. I know that these aren't just fables but that these are historical facts. Such knowledge does not bring a person to true salvation, though. Okay. These same people are also described as tasting the heavenly gift. Tasting the heavenly gift. Well, this one is easy to look at and understand to have tasted the heavenly gift because I know that there's a great difference between tasting something and embracing something. I love to taste food. It's a great pastime of mine. Oh, I love food. And I love the great variety that is available in different types of dishes from all over the world. I'm pretty adventurous. I'll eat anything you put in front of me. That doesn't mean I'll always ask what it is, but I'll eat it and try it, and if I like it, I'll go back for more. I remember the first time I tried tripe. Do you know what tripe is? Stomach. Delicious. Oh, it was so good. I couldn't believe I loved it. Everyone said, there's no way you're going to like tripe. Well, knowing that I like tripe, I went to a Vietnamese restaurant uh, while I was working one day with some friends, and I ordered some pho tai nam because it was a tripe soup. I thought it would be delicious. Inside of that wasn't just tripe, but also beef tendons. Now you've gone too far. I tasted it, but those tendons stayed in my bowl. I didn't go back for more. We can do the same thing with a heavenly gift. We can taste of the benefits of being involved in a community that is committed to glorifying God. We can experience the benefits of the Word of God being proclaimed to us, teaching us all things pertaining to life and faith. We can experience the benefit of love and compassion. We could be real decent moral people and experience the benefit that comes from that. Turns out, by the way, just being a moral person or generally nice, you make more friends than being a curmudgeon. Certainly that's a benefit. But that doesn't mean that we've embraced it. That doesn't mean that we've dived deep, experiencing all the love and joy that is placed inside of the Christian who, once being exposed to the truth of the Word of God, wants nothing more than to live their entire life reading it and growing in it in maturity, who abandons all things that they thought were of priority in their life so that they could pursue glorifying God, not just in who they are, but what they do. 
So then, tasting of the heavenly gift doesn't necessarily mean that a person has come to salvation. Let's look at this next description. Again, verse 4, they have shared in the Holy Spirit. This one's tough. To take share with the Holy Spirit is literally to have fellowship with Him. How could this possibly be describing a counterfeit Christian? This is the hardest, perhaps, of all phrases to understand so that we would be able to see what it means for those who have shared in the Holy Spirit to fall away. And by saying that also, it is the greatest warning for those who would sit in the church deceiving themselves that they have come to a salvific faith when in fact there is no fruit producing evidence of that in their lives. We know of the work of the Holy Spirit in the life of those who hear the word of God proclaimed. That it convicts us first of sin. That it corrects us. What does it mean to have share with the Holy Spirit? It means not only that you have tasted of the heavenly gifts, not only that you have been enlightened in understanding the truth, but it also means that you've been convicted of your own wickedness. That you know that not only what the Bible teaches is true, but you have realized and made a personal connection with it in recognizing that you are a sinner in need of a Savior. What? This simple verse would seem to undermine the doctrine of irresistible grace. Is it possible that somebody could be convicted of their sin and not come to a saving faith in God? Loved ones, we see it all around us. I believe the decline in the American church is evidence of it. Rather than embracing true worship and genuine worship of God, I I believe our society, even when I say society, I mean our church society, those who would go to church, I believe Instead of embracing worship of God, we have embraced being a good person. If we understand what the Bible says correctly, we know that being a good person will for no one bring them into the kingdom of heaven. Being a good person will not save you. It will not save me. It is by grace that we are saved. And so looking at this, we must be able to admit that this share in the Holy Spirit, this understanding of sin, even to the point of being convicted of it, greatly stirred inside of us, does not mean that a person has come to truly repent. They may even have repented of those actions that convicted them and walked away without any real spiritual change or spiritual life being placed inside of them. They realize they've got a problem, but they're not ready to go forward into maturity. These people have tasted the goodness of the Word of God. They sit under preaching I think for the most part, these people spend time in the church, especially as we consider the examples or the seeds that I planted already this morning of Judas, of Demos, of Simon. They experience the goodness of the word of God, but they even experience the powers of the age to come in being able to witness the miraculous, being able to witness the signs and the wonders that I believe are taking place in the church as our prayers are answered, that I believe are taking place in the church as people come to know Christ, the greatest miracle of all, that new life would take place, that a heart of stone would be replaced with a heart of flesh. They've experienced and witnessed these powers. They've seen the goodness of the Word of God, but they have not been brought to true repentance. When we ask our two primary questions that help us to understand this passage, Who are the people that this verse is describing? These are the people that sit in the church with us. These are the people that go to church in our community. 
What is their spiritual condition? Convicted and lost. Deceived by a gospel that proclaims salvation by something other than God's unmerited favor. Looking at that and realizing just how, in all honesty, terrifying this warning is. As I consider people in my life that I love, as I consider my own salvation, looking at this warning, I wonder, what is it that I place my confidence in to know that I know my Savior? That I have obtained salvation as He has promised to offer those who would believe in Him. Certainly, it cannot be being enlightened and knowing the truth. It can't be being right. It can't be sharing in the Holy Spirit that convicts me of sin. It can't be tasting the goodness of the Word of God and the powers of the age to come. What is it then that my confidence is based in? Hold on to that thought because first, we need to look at just what are the consequences of these people spiritually lost and in the church. What are the consequences for them? Just how serious is this business we call church? Verse 4 begins, It is impossible, and picks up in verse 6 to say, that those who have fallen away, it is impossible for them again to come to repentance. It is impossible for these people to repent once they have fallen away. I know how just how troubling that is. I'm not pushing it out or, or focusing on that point because it brings me great delight. It brings me great terror. I'm pushing that point because those are the words that are found in God's Word. It is impossible for those who have fallen away after experiencing these things to repent. Perhaps what terrifies me most is the word that is emphasized in verse 4. It is Impossible. Impossible. It's impossible. This is word is found in the emphatic position even in the text. Notice it comes all the way in verse 4, while the continuing thought doesn't even connect until verse 6. This word is being emphasized by our author in drawing the point home that it is impossible. It's not obtainable. Our author uses the same word, impossible, to describe other things throughout the letter to Hebrews. And by looking at these things, I think we see just how dire impossibility is. Hebrews 6.18 tells us that it is impossible for God to lie. I'm already shaking in my boots, as it were, because that means that it's impossible for God to have said that it's impossible for these people to repent and it not be true. Hebrews 10.4, it is impossible that the blood of bulls and goats can take away sin. It is impossible to please God without faith, says Hebrews 11.6. An impossibility stands as an unmovable obstruction. F.F. Bruce quoted as saying that God has pledged Himself to pardon all who truly repent, but Scripture and experience alike suggest that it is possible for human beings to arrive at a state of heart and life where they can no longer repent. Are you realizing just how serious this warning is? As the generations increased upon the earth immediately from the time of creation all the way as we look at this experience in Genesis chapter 6, we find that man considered himself strong. That you and I think more of ourselves than we really should. That we come to church thinking that we are doing what is right before God. That even as good, well-taught, and well-discipled Baptist, understanding that salvation is by faith alone, we have placed more merit on works than we ever should have. We have become complacent in every area of our lives outside of worshiping God. 
Now, if you think those words are harsh, I ask you to simply evaluate what your life looks like when you leave on Sunday. How often are you engaged in evangelizing the lost? Is it difficult or is it easy? On a scale of 1 to 10, if you like. To bring up matters of faith. Do you struggle to come to the Word of God, or does it take place every moment of your day as you reflect upon the Bible reading that takes place in your spiritual disciplines? Our author has warned us just before this passage, go on to maturity. We see this warning as the consequence that comes from not pursuing such maturity. Genesis chapter 6, we find God reminding us Himself that His Spirit shall not always strive with man. When I talk about the perils of church, what I am making reference to is that what we are doing is serious business. If you sit under the Word of God regularly in your lives and do not produce genuine faith that comes from God and God alone, not from yourself, this passage describes you. It describes a time to come when repentance becomes impossible. Now, I know this is very encouraging and you've all been uplifted by this message this morning. The encouragement doesn't come in what might happen in the future, but what you can do today, as our author tells us, to push on for maturity. Leaving the elementary doctrine of Christ and to go on to maturity, not laying again the foundation of repentance from dead works and from faith towards God and the instruction about washing, the laying on of hands, the resurrection of the dead and the eternal judgment. This instruction comes on your reliance to God, verse 3, that if God permits, we will do this. The encouragement comes in today. In reflecting on this passage, I might say that what does all of this mean? You may have noticed that I'm pretty young, even if Michelle says I'm getting wrinkly. If the day comes that I fall away from the faith, it will mean that all along I was a fraud. If the day comes that I am succumbed to some sort of scandal or even a rejection of Christ, it will mean that my prayers or for my own well-being and not God's glory. It will mean that I was a false teacher. There's a reason why I spend more time <laughs> reading dead guys than living guys. I've found that in reading living guys, as much as I enjoy their contemporary discussions and things that are relevant to my time, that it's easy to be let down. How many authors or teachers have I followed or appreciated or admired and come to be disappointed by the fruit that is evidenced in their later years? There is a reason why tradition matters. Michelle hasn't been feeling well, that's why she's not here. But being a mom and not feeling well is something of a, a great obstacle, and mothers would agree with this. Yesterday she was crying, and I was, I was trying to console her, and she said, I just feel so alone, I don't know when I'm getting a break. And we had to have a little bit of a tough love conversation about realistic expectations and everything else. The comfort in that conversation came from the fact that we were able to say, there is a mountain of generations of women that have come before you that have done the same thing. There is a mountain of generations of women that have come before you that know what it is to be a mother. 
And I know many of them that are praying for you now. I appreciate tradition for what it is. The fact that it has been tested and refined by the struggle and the difficulty that comes in growing in our faith. For instance, coming to a passion passion like Hebrews chapter 6 and trying to rightly understand it and divide the Word of God. Such passages that make us question what we know and humble us before our very Savior are a blessing in the refining work of the Holy Spirit in edifying His saints. They cause us not to run away, not even to cling to what we thought that we know, but to cling all the more to a Savior that is compassionate, to a priest whose priesthood never ends. How can we know? This is the question I ask you to hold on to. If these things describe someone who could possibly fall away, what confidence could we possibly have in our salvation? I ask you to look only at verses 7 through 8. We find an illustration. For the land that has drunk the rain that often falls on it and produces a crop useful for those whose sake it is cultivated receives a blessing from God. But if it bears thorns and thistles, it is worthless and near to being cursed, and its end is to be burned. Now you might say that being a field being burned is actually a great blessing, and our Hebrew was not necessary our author of Hebrews was not necessarily an expert in agriculture, but we see the illustration that he's giving us. John writing in his first epistle. For by this we know that we have come to know the Savior if we keep His commandments. This isn't a legalistic issue or even an issue that we have earned our salvation by keeping the commandments, but our confidence in salvation comes in the fact that when we repent of our sin, it is genuine, that it is not just a contrite and sad experience, but it is a solemn and joyful experience, recognizing that our own repentance has brought us into union with the body of Christ, that we have experienced the real joy I think perhaps even myself that the real evidence of salvation is that a conversation about confessing sin does not cause you to be sad. But it causes you to be joyful because you recognize that it is through such a humbling act of recognizing your need for a Savior and true confession that you are able to come and experience the joy of His presence. The difference between a counterfeit Christian and the real deal is evidenced by the way that they live their lives. These people deceived the church. Simon deceived the church. Judas deceived the church. Do you think that the other 11 disciples sat around and went, yeah, I called that from the beginning. I thought he was a wolf in sheep's clothing. They were betrayed as much as Christ was. The evidence of the real deal is that when we are confronted with sinfulness, when we are confronted with thoughts and desires, when we are confronted with the things that exist in our lives, and we come to confess them before God, our attitude is not that I'm glad I can do what I want so you can cover it up. Such hedonistic teaching has become more and more prominent in the church, especially in those with prominent platforms. And it's no wonder. This is what the world wants to hear. We have the great warning against such teachings that would affirm making me feel better about the things that I know I should be convicted of. The grace of God is not a security blanket that we use simply to cover up our internal conflict. 
The grace of God is the blessing by which God has poured out His love in our lives, not just giving us the ability to confess, but the ability to repent, to turn away. In fact, even to have victory over sinfulness in accomplishing what He has done. If we will train ourselves in maturity, practicing the distinguishing good from evil, if we will grow in all of these things by turning to Him. There is no fruit in those that live such lives that they deceive the church. They bear thorns and thistles. They are worthless. They are near to being cursed. Their end is to be burned in eternal damnation because the confidence that they thought that they had is worthless. But those that bear fruit receive a blessing from God. Those that grow in the faith and in maturity, that push onward to experience the refining work of living life in God's word, they experience a blessing. They experience the joy of real fellowship. This evening, as we move to verse 9, we'll see just how wonderful this passage is. Because our author is not writing this simply to put somebody on an anxious bench. He's not writing this so that good Christians could be insecure about their own salvation. He's writing those. He's writing this warning so that those who think that they have been saved and have not really come to place their faith in God would wake up. D.L. Moody tells a story. D.L. Moody was an evangelist. And uh, just so you know, I don't agree with everything that he says, and I'm I'm not recommending him to you. But I think he tells a great story that illustrates this point. While serving, there came a man who said, I know that I need to be saved. The man became sick and went to the hospital. Moody went to visit him. And the man prayed with Moody. He said, I know that I need to be saved. And I tell you what, if I make it out of this hospital bed, I'm going to do it. I want to put my faith in God. I want to come to your revival meeting. I'm going to repent, and I'm going to join a church, and I'm going to be a real Christian. Guess what happened? He got better. And he didn't come because he was busy. He had other things going on. A year later, the same man got sick again. Moody went to visit him again. Moody explained again the basic elementary principles of the Word of God. And he asked, would you place your faith in Christ? And the man said, it's too late. It's too late. As I read Moody describing this scene, he describes his prayers in that moment as praying to an iron vault. What we do in church is serious business because you this morning, this week, the times that we gather as we fellowship together, as you experience all these blessings of God, you have heard the basic oracles. What makes it serious business is you might leave waiting for that next day. And the day may come when it's too late. This isn't an easy business. I realized the other day that what we do as a church is pretty fantastic. 
I have the great blessing of teaching people how to become immortal and gathering them together so that they can take over the world. I say that kind of glib, but what the church does is a big deal. My prayer is that we would not turn to this passage and simply explain it away, but that we would take heed to a warning that is addressed to us. Our Father in heaven, we come to you humble. We come to you humble and thankful that your word of God does not promise us things that rely on our own weakness. But it promises us eternal life that comes from your good nature, your kindness, and your mercy. And God, I praise you because this morning we've heard your word. We often pray, God, that the seed of faith would be planted God, we pray that it would grow and that it would be nourished, but reading this word, God, I wonder if we're not in fact apathetic ourselves in recognizing that your word doesn't just plant a seed, but that it sprouts faith. God, I pray that good Christians this morning would stand to sing glories to your name, invigorated and recharged by the peace that we have with you. God, I pray that we would know that we have come to know you, that it would be evidenced in our lives as we serve in this community. And God, I, I pray that in Greenwood, that our testimony would be protected as we go to the neighbors and friends and our acquaintances and our coworkers, that we would realize that there is nothing more important in this world than the ministry that you have trusted us with. God, that this church would be used, that the churches who truly worship you would be used, that there would be real faith seen in our neighbors. God, bring us to know you. Help us to push onward to maturity, that we might be refined like gold in a fire, removing all impurity. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.